Welcome back, my friends, to the D-Rate the Hate podcast. I am your host, Wilk of Wilksworld.com, and I am so incredibly grateful that you are taking the time to join me for another powerful DTH episode. Friends, at the D-Rate the Hate podcast, it's all about bettering the world one attitude at a time. See, we did not create the hate, but with your help, we can derate the hate. That all starts with gratitude and personal accountability. We cannot control everything that happens to us in life, but we can control how we react to it. How we act, how we react, no matter what happens to us, how we react to it makes the difference. Friends, there is only one good thing about a bad attitude, and that is that we have the ability as individuals to change it. Here on the DTH Podcast, we strive to bring you great guests and provide tools to do just that. Please be sure to share it with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't done so. Ratings and feedback are always greatly appreciated. And with that, let's get to this week's episode. Friends, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can all admit that there is a certain amount of bias in all of us. We have to open up to that vulnerability. We also have to realize that our unconscious thoughts contribute to that bias. This is not something that I often think about as I do my very best every day and in every way to try and treat every single human being the same way, to see the humanity in everybody. So I've invited my new friend, Jessica Nordell, in to talk about her book, The End of Bias, A Beginning, to get her input on how we can eliminate unconscious bias and create a more just world. Jessica was introduced to me by my good friend Monica Guzman of Braver Angels because she knew that this would be a great conversation for two people of diametrically opposed political views, but very common views when it comes to the humanity of all people, whether they agree with us or not. Now, if you're not familiar with Jessica, she's an award-winning author and science writer known for blending rigorous science with compassionate humanity. Her first book... The End of Bias, A Beginning, is the culmination of 15 years of reporting and writing on the subject of bias and discrimination and how to solve it. She's written for publications including the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The New Republic. The End of Bias was named a Best Book of the Year by World Economic Forum, Greater Good, AARP, and Inc. Magazine, and is currently being used by organizations from newsrooms and startups to universities healthcare organizations, and faith communities to solve some of the biggest cultural challenges. Don't miss another great DTH conversation with my friend Jessica Nordell. Here we go. Jessica Nordell, thank you for joining me on the D-Rate the Hate podcast. I have been looking at the stuff that, that you do based on an introduction from our mutual friend Monica Guzman. And I'm excited for the conversation. So thank you so much, Jessica, for joining me today. I do appreciate you being here. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you. Yeah. So your book, The uh, the End of Bias, A, a Beginning. Uh, first of all, I, you know, obviously with the D-Rate the Hate podcast, we talk about bias. We talk about we talk about all kinds of things when it comes to, uh, you know, if it, if it's bias or if it's diversity or if it's racism or if it's anti-racism, you know, I've covered I've covered the gambit on so many of these these things. And and when when Monica came to me and and asked if I'd be interested, I was like, absolutely, you know, with a with a title like the end of bias, a beginning. Yeah, of course we got to have this conversation. <laughs> so, so Jessica, let's let's start off uh, talking about, you know, what was your inspiration for for the book? Where did this get mm-hmm. started for you? I, I know it's something that you've been working on for a very long time. From from mm-hmm. the from the things that I've seen and the things that I've I've heard from you so far. So tell me where this started. Why did mm-hmm. this become a passion? Why did you write this book? Mm-hmm. You know. I started getting interested in bias as a journalist because, honestly, because of experiences that I had had as a journalist. So one of my early, uh, one of my early experiences was writing for a lot of local and regional publications in Minnesota, where where I, where I lived then and where I I live now, and 
wanting to kind of expand my scope, start writing for national publications. And so I started doing what journalists do, which is you you pitch, you send queries to editors. They don't know who you are. And you say, hey, you know, I'm this person. I've got this great idea. It's going to be amazing. Here's my vision for this article. What do you think? And so I was sending these queries out and I was getting like no response, like not even like no thanks, we're not interested, but just, you know, radio silence. And I thought, okay, you know, I can handle this. I'll just keep, keep going, keep trying, you know, don't let it get you down. And eventually I had this one story that I was working on that was tied to something happening in the world that was like a very specific time period. So I knew that if I, if I didn't place this piece pretty quickly, it was just not, no one was going to care about it anymore. So, so I sent that piece out again, radio silence, no one responded. And then I had this like moment of desperation where I thought, well, oh my gosh, I've been working so hard on this. It's just going to die on the vine. What am I going to do? So I thought, well, maybe I'll send it out under a man's name and just see what happens. Like, I didn't know, you know, what would happen. So I made a new email address, new, uh, you know, new signature. I sent out the same query, but with a name that sounded like a, a more masculine name. And that piece was accepted within a couple hours. And it was the same piece. And it was even the same editor who I had pitched earlier with no response. So it was interesting. And I was like, totally shocked. I did not expect this to work. I I thought this is a crazy idea. It's not going to work, but it worked. So that, well, it it did two things. It started my journalism career because from there I started writing for national publications using that, that byline. And I also got really interested in bias because I thought, you know, this editor probably wasn't thinking to himself, I'm just going to reject anything from a woman. Like, you know, I don't think women can do this job. I I really doubt that. Like, he probably didn't think that. But there might have been something unconscious that just gave him, made him give a little more attention to that, you know, email when it came from JD versus Jessica. So that's kind of what made me interested in bias to start with. So, so maybe I'll stop there because there's more to the story. But oh yeah, no, uh, I, yeah. I, I and I and I'm sure that it's it's much you know much more involved than that. And so I, I do have one question real quick. Did you did you yeah. continue using like a different pen name then, or or did you once you started gaining notoriety kind of throw in there that JD is Jessica or or how how did that work? Yeah, you know it was it was tricky. I did use it for a while. I used it for a couple years, and then I I ran into some problems because I'd have a situation where I would like email have an email correspondence with an editor as JD and then we'd have to talk on the phone about something and I'd pick up the phone and say hi this is Jessica and then they'd be confused and it was like really stressful for me to keep track of who thought of me as JD so I eventually I eventually got rid of it and went back to just just writing as Jessica okay okay yeah and and so as you, so once you, once you started to build this reputation, I understand maybe building the reputation as JD and, and, you know, th- there's got to be that transition. Did you think, did you see things falling back off as you, as you transitioned back to Jessica? And I don't want to make people think, especially in this day and age that we're talking about transitioning. Transition. Right. Yeah. It's but, a good clarification. Right. So <laughs> as 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 you're transitioning your works yes from a pen name of JD Nordell to yeah. Jessica Nordell did you see uh notoriety and 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 things dropping off or did i mean were you established enough and, and had already made the right contacts at that point that things were getting opened i mean you you were you were in you yeah yeah i think at that i think after a while exactly as you said like i i had enough sort of clips, you know, examples of my work under my belt that I had a little bit more of a foundation. But, you know, you never know, like, I think none of us ever know for sure what, what things might be like if we inhabited a different, you know, persona. Um, So who knows, you know, how things might have been different if I'd continued to use JD, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know. No, it's an it's definitely an interesting thing. and, and And it's certainly something, obviously, that that could, 
definitely get the mind or the, the the wheel spinning, right? I mean, sure. You look at those things and you're like, okay, is 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 this really what's happening? Is this is this exactly? You know, is this real? So going going with the idea of is this real? I, I yeah. know one of the things that you talk about in in the book is unconscious bias right now right now, now, now you you take me as somebody based on what i've read at this point or read up to this point and i you know admittedly have not read the the the, the whole book just excerpts but as somebody who who doesn't believe that all of this stuff is intentional you talk about intentional bias or unintentional bias versus or un- unconscious bias rather versus mm-hmm. our conscious thoughts. So get into that a little bit for me, Jessica. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between our conscious thoughts and, and what we do versus unconscious bias? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I mean, the idea of unconscious bias sort of came about to try to explain this paradox that people were seeing, which is that if you ask most people Let's say if you ask people in general, if they believe people should be treated fairly, most people will say yes. You know, if you ask people, do you think everyone should be treated with dignity and respect and, you know, a sense of common humanity? Most people say, of course, absolutely. There are very few people who are like, no, you know, I think people should be treated totally unfairly all the time. Um, But then if you watch people's behavior, you see something different. So you see things, for example, like um, like faculty, there was this one study where they sent out emails to hundreds of faculty members around the country at universities. And it was the same email from a pers- supposed prospective graduate student. And what the study found was that the faculty members were less likely to respond to the email if that email from a prospective graduate student came from someone whose name sounded Black or Latino or Asian or female um, than if the name was something like Brad Anderson. So you see, you know, people's people are kind of behaving in ways that aren't necessarily aligned with this value of treating people fairly. And so the, the idea of unconscious bias is that maybe it's not that people are lying about their beliefs, you know, and they secretly really want to be unfair, but maybe What's happening is we absorb a lot of stereotypes from our culture, just living in a culture that's diverse and somewhat segregated in some ways and, you know, has this complex history that we have in the United States, for instance. We absorb a lot of stereotypes. And then when we encounter someone who fits into a category that we have in our mind, those stereotypes can start to influence how we react to the person, how we think about them what we expect them to do or not do in a way that is not actually what we believe, but it's, it's like our, without our realizing it, these stereotypes are influencing our behavior. So that's kind of the idea of unconscious bias that you have beliefs on one hand that you really hold dear. Like I believe in the dignity of all human beings. And then you have stereotypes or associations that kind of live in your head that you don't necessarily believe, but they're kind of like lurking around like spam, you know, in your head that you don't really sure. want there, but they're they're there and they're kind of influencing you in ways that you might not realize. Sure. Well, yeah, no, I, and I think that makes perfect sense. I, I think it's a very interesting point. And 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 I don't think people most most oftentimes even think about that because again, it's well, it's obviously it's unconscious, right? Yeah. And it happens really fast. You know, if you're not like really paying attention to, you know, the inner workings of your own mind, I do it all the time. Like I catch myself all the time now making an assumption about someone and then having to stop and be like, where did that come from? I don't know this person, you know? Well, yeah. And it it even goes to, I mean, just to break this down, maybe even call it little devil's advocate thing, which, which I'm going to do a little bit in this conversation, obviously. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when, when people are let's say employers are, are going through resumes, right? They're yeah. going through resumes and they're looking through resumes. They're looking at things like, and maybe not so much anymore because they're all online, but you know, the different kind of stationery, the different kind of font that you're using to print the different kind of, you know, things like that. 
they've got a formula that's already worked out in their brain. Yes. As to how things, they may have a stack of 25 resumes. They're going through things and they're making decisions based on stuff that some people would think are completely, it may may think are, are, are completely silly. You know, right. like I said, stationary, font. The, the way that you you put your header on the on on the resume you know things like that and I, I'm, I'm I'm certainly not trying to equate taking out somebody who's who's a female or, or or of a different race or ethnicity not comparing that to stationary or font no but, but you're you're but but I'm, I'm just saying that the thing is 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 we develop these formulas in our head of how we are going to make our decisions. Exactly. So, you know, and then I'll take it I'll take it one step further. You know, we talk about this is this is something that comes up in in these conversations all the time is profiling. Well, mm-hmm. obviously profiling there's good profiling and there's bad profiling. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, profiling a, a certain suspect to find the right unknown subject in a in a criminal case or whatever makes sense, right? We're we're doing it. But it's only when you have bad intent towards mm-hmm. the person or the class of people or whatever that you use that as a profiling category that I think things are bad. So does that make sense? I mean, that's yeah, that's- yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think the challenge with something like, you know, racial profiling is that people are Base, let, let's say uh, racial profiling that that affects African Americans in the United States, that people are unfairly linked to potentially, you know, the, a group of suspects without actually any data that specifically links that person to a particular crime. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, 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 I'm with you on that. I, I, sure, I, I think I, I think, and I talk a lot about correlation and causation, right? Mm-hmm. Just because there's a correlation to one thing doesn't mean there's causation. So mm-hmm. just because we talked, you know, we talked briefly there for about about criminal cases. You know, we we talk about maybe the number of blacks who are are you know arrested in the city limits of New York City and Chicago and Los Angeles and name any big city right mm-hmm. in, in the United States. Just because more black people are arrested in those cities doesn't mean they're arrested because they're black, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my way, in my opinion. So that's, I see what you're saying. You know, that's where I talk about correlation versus causation. Yes. The number is larger, but it's not because they're black. It's just because more people of color are, are actually committing crimes in those bigger cities. You go to a smaller city and not so much. I, I mean, you know, you go to a city where there's virtually no crime and it doesn't matter whether it's black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever the case may be. The numbers are all similar because there's very little crime. There's very little crime being committed. So it doesn't matter of what ethnicity you're from. Mm-hmm. Nobody's getting arrested because there's not a lot of crime. Right. So correlation versus causation. So that's one of the things that I think about when I think about things like this. But so going going more into. Can I just go back to uh, the the resume example you used for a yeah, sec? Yeah, because sure, you, were sa- you, you were talking about how, you know, employers will. Well, you know, note things like maybe the quality of the stationery and and make some kind of assumption about a person based on that. And what this made me think of is actually some of the research that I describe um, in the book looked at how information on the resume that has nothing to do with someone's job can still give a signal to an employer that then makes them more or less likely to hire someone. So, for instance, there was um, one study that looked at, I think it was. I can't remember if it was law firms or consultancies, but what they what the researchers found was that employers, if if the hiring manager had played a certain had played a sport in college, they were more likely to hire someone, not only who had played a sport, but who had played the same sport. Oh, sure. So they're kind of you know sometimes people look for people who just remind them of themselves. That's that's a bias that many of us have. You know, we feel comfortable with people who we can relate to in some ways. But of right. course, the problem there is that like, you know, a person playing like water polo or something doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good lawyer, or whatever, whatever sure. the case sure. may be. Yeah. And and I, I think that goes to Jessica, where we as human beings are probably looking for, we, 
<laughs> this may sound funny, but okay. So if somebody played football and I played football and I think I'm a good person, I may associate playing football with other good people. Right. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, so, and this, this goes to the point that, that I made and, and whatever there is good bias and bad bias. Right. I mean, bias is a, is a natural human trait. So if, uh, again, let's say you and I, we, we're from the Midwest, right? Yeah. Where where are you located? I'm actually in Minnesota. No so. kidding. Oh, my gosh. I'm in South Minneapolis. How cool. So I've had, I've, I've had a lot of experience around the country and, and yes. you know, not, not just in Minnesota. But, you know, so think about this. So So we're from the Midwest, right? As we do different things around different parts of the country... And I, I know that you've traveled, you've worked in, in, in other places in the country as, as I have. If we run into somebody from the Midwest, we are more inclined to associate with them and maybe even build a relationship with them because we're from the Midwest. Now, does there's that mean we There's a sense that there's a common it, foundation. That common foundation, yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I just, and, and the reason that I bring this up, and we've probably kind of kind of taken this part of the conversation a little deeper than we needed to, but, <laughs> but the reality is, is this bias is not always bad. Profiling is not always bad. It's when you use the wrong criteria in your bias that things start to go sideways, right? Things get ugly. I mean, I'll, I will, I guess I'll, I'll disagree with you a little bit there. So when I, so the way I've come to think about unconscious bias. And let me, let me just, I just want to also make the point that most of the book is actually about solutions to the problem. So I just want to, I just want to, you know, mention that mostly what I write about is how we actually solve this problem. And that's what uh, I want to hear about. I I really do. So like I said, we may have been going a little deeper into this. No, it's fine. It's just the Um, conversation part. Yeah, no, but um, you know, when, when I think of unconscious bias, the the way that I have come to understand it is it's using stereotypes and associations that we've absorbed from our culture in our interaction with an individual human being. And I think that's a problem because we're not engaging with the individual. And I'm sure that in, in your podcast, this is also what you're trying to do is engage with individuals, not abstract ideas or ideologies, but like human beings. Right. And I think the, you know, the problem with bias, whether it's gender or race or political ideology or religion or all of these different stereotypes we have, if I if I start using those to interact with you, rather than seeing you for who you are and all of the complexity that makes you this individual person that you are, then I'm not really seeing reality. Like mm-hmm. I'm interacting with a hallucination that I'm right. creating in collaboration with my culture <laughs> instead so, of with you. And it doesn't give you the dignity and respect that you deserve. I couldn't agree with you more. That is that is absolutely awesome, Jessica. And I love that point because you're right. If somebody goes in with a preconceived notion of who I am, which has happened quite often, and, and quite honestly, that's one of the ways that this podcast has come about, mm-hmm. but or the way that I grew up, you know, a uh, very poor kid from the Midwest, always hand-me-downs, leftovers, shabby car. People go into that conversation or that interaction with a preconceived notion, and they may miss a lot of who I am or who you yes. are yes. Or, or, or whatever, instead of actually saying, okay, this person is a blank slate in my mind. Let me get to know who they are and build my own understanding of this human being. No, I love that. And that's that's absolutely beautiful. That is beautiful because that is I I think that's so important. You know, I I I, one of one of my my dear friends that I've made from the podcast and and somebody who I I really enjoyed having on the podcast and, and learning more about her through the podcast and, and and the works that she's done is Dr. Sheena Mason, the theory of racelessness. I don't know mm. if you've, you've read that or, 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 or heard of her or seen the work that she does, but it, it's very much the same thing. She talks about not actually race, not being a thing, 
Exactly. Yes, so, it's an invention. It's a complete it's, it's, invention. It's an invention. It's a it's a social construct. Yes. That that people have developed to try and keep people separated. And as long as people keep using race to identify one another, we will stay divided. So I think that's a really that is I'm so glad you bring that up because that what you're pointing to is like one of the deep tensions of talking about this work, which is exactly, I mean, I think sometimes people on the left aren't really willing to acknowledge the truth of what you're saying, which which is true. And there's research that shows that the more we emphasize a particular category and, and emphasize how important that category it is, the easier it is for us to see everyone in that category as being the same. Correct. And that leads to stereotyping. Absolutely. Yeah. However, I, oh, go ahead. No. Oh, I was going to say, however, but I think sometimes the conversation ends there. Like when I hear people who lean more right talk about this, I think sometimes that's where the conversation ends. And what I think it's also important to understand is that these categories that have existed for hundreds and in some cases thousands of years can't just go away overnight. And in fact, if we ignore them, it can lead to a lack of understanding and a feeling of disrespect and a feeling of invisibility from uh, on, on the part of people who are treated as part of those categories. Do you know what I mean? So it's sure. like these are intention. These are really, this is really a point of tension where there are these two, there are pros and cons. And I, I think that this is something where we just have to struggle with as a country. Oh, I think, I think. We do. And and I think, you know, going to your point about, you know, people on the left, obviously, people in this in this country specifically on the left love to interject race and gender and whatever, every other category that you can think of into every category that they think they can get some mileage out of, get some traction out of. And it drives me insane. It, it, uh -huh. I'm not going to lie. It, it it drives me insane because, and I've done episodes about talking, you know, get out of the box. Don't let people put labels on you. Right. You know, uh, you know grab your own identity and, and don't try to uh, allow this thing that people have constructed to keep us separated, keep us separated. Because it, literally that's what it's for, uh, in, in my opinion, in most cases, uh, political and and this actually beautiful uh, it beautifully segues into what I wanted to talk about with you next, Jessica. Is you talk in the book about the 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 problems with with DEI programs in, in so many of these corporations and and things. And again, this this makes me think about my my friend Dr. Sheena Mason and then another friend of mine, Daryl Davis, going into into schools Daryl and corporations. Yeah, going into these schools and corporations and actually talking to people on a different level rather than the standard DEI, in my opinion, most of the time this DEI stuff is toxic. Mm -hmm. So I want you to talk from your perspective, you know, because I know I know you talk in the books, like I said, about the, the problems and the yeah. lack of results in a yeah. lot of ways with, with standard DEI instruction. Or, or yeah, I mean, it's it 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 really is a problem. Like if you look at uh, you know, research about whether whether the diversity trainings for instance change people's behavior, which is ideally what you what you think people would want, right? That that you would do this training and then people would start to behave more fairly or, you know, in more just ways. Well, you would think that that would be the goal, right? You'd think that would be the goal. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of these trainings don't actually have research behind them. So the problem with that is that they could be making things better. They could be making things worse, or they could be having no effect at all. And we just don't know because in many cases, there isn't research. The risk also is that sometimes they can cause backlash. And there is research that suggests that when people are forced to go to a diversity training, this does lead to some backlash. And in fact, there are some sociologists who looked at a few decades of diversity programs in corporate cor corporations, and they found 
some approaches seem to actually create more pathways to management and leadership for women and people from minority backgrounds. And some actually had the opposite effect. And one of the one of the approaches that had the opposite effect in their research was mandatory diversity trainings. And their hypothesis is that when people feel forced to do something, they feel their autonomy is being taken away. This creates anger and kind of resentment and it actually leads to the opposite of what what these um right. trainings are all about. So it's yeah, it's a real challenge. Yeah, and I think I think that comes along with with anything because a, a lot of these programs and I've read through a number of uh, of different ones and and some of you know, I think some have merit and some are just off the wall and I think there's always going to be room for growth, but that growth is going to be somewhere in the middle. But mm-hmm. talking about the backlash, right? So I've seen and looked through stuff and, and you know, I, I think about Abram X. Kendi's Racism, Anti-Racism and You book, which in my opinion is like truly racist. It's it's a disgusting book. But that type of get in your face and tell you everybody that disagrees with this book is a racist kind of approach will always breed more toxicity and division than it's going to do anything to build unity, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to do anything to heal anybody. It's going to cause more problems. So when a corporation takes the stance that we're going to take on a program like this, and I don't think any any corporation in its right mind is going to use that book, but our our public school system did, which is, is a nightmare in and of itself. But I, you know, a corporation does that they build animosity amongst their ranks. And and I, I think that kind of thing is ultimately toxic. It it does it does worse than it's it's gonna it's gonna it does more bad than good. Yeah. I mean I think one of the challenges in talking about this work, and I actually I have I, I love Ibram uh, X. Kendi's book Stamped from the Beginning. I don't know if you've if you've read that one, but I it's an excellent it's a history of of race and ideas about race that's the one and and that's that's the one that i think is horrible but (laughs) oh really stand from the beginning oh i think it's great i mean one of the things that i really appreciated about that book was he had the same question i did which is um where did this idea of race even come from and who was the first person to express the idea that people from the continent of africa were inferior like where did it you know it was invented by somebody and he actually traced it to a particular moment in time in the 1400s, uh, which was really helpful for me, you know, in my kind of understanding of how these ideas get created and perpetuated. But we we can disagree about that book. That's okay. And, and you, yeah, and, and we will, but that's, and, and we don't need to, but I, I want you yeah. to make your point. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think one of the challenges is that, and I get it, it's really tough. I think when people think about unconscious bias or this, this idea of, um, you know, racial bias and gender bias, when these ideas are brought up, understandably, people feel often that they're being attacked, that they're being told that they're bad, that there's something wrong with them. And understandably, people are like, I'm a decent person. I do the best I can. And how dare you accuse me of this thing that is not true for me? I think that I think there's this real challenge, which I really try to do with this book, which is I'm not accusing or blaming anyone. What what I want to do is, is for us as a culture to understand how some bad ideas have gotten passed down, that we've mm-hmm. inherited bad ideas about white superiority or male superiority, um, and that those ideas are still influencing our society in ways that I think are actually bad for all of us. Yeah. No, I, and and I think I, I definitely think there's there's a lot of merit to that thought process, Jessica. It, it uh, first of all, I, I mean, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, that's that's the point that I was making as well. Is is in some of these DEI trainings and and some of the stuff that we see. Uh, in, in some of those programs, you're right. People feel attacked, and mm-hmm. as soon as they feel attacked, they they're going to put up their defensives. They, they exactly they 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 are no longer listening exactly to uh, to what to what they need. So so 
going to what we were talking about earlier, one of the things that you've tried to do with this book that I, that I really admire is because people people all day long, and there's there's people out there, Jessica. There's there's countless people out there that love to talk about problems, right? Yes, they love to talk about problems, but they never yeah. like to come up with solutions. Yes, what, what you said you've done with this, and 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 I want people to understand is okay. We we can all agree that there's there's problems, right? We may not agree on what all the problems are, and and, and we could spend all day long talking about the things that we disagree on, because I, I know for sure, Jessica, that there's going to be stuff that you and I would probably never agree on. Mm-hmm. That doesn't matter. What I would like to talk about is what are the solutions that you have, whether whether the problem is is real, perceived, or maybe understood differently than what I would perceive it as, mm-hmm. what do you come to the table with in this book, Jessica, for solutions? Well, there are many, many, the good news is there are many solutions. And I, what I was looking for was approaches that have actually been shown to cause people to behave in ways that are more fair, just, and humane toward one another. And so I'll give you a couple examples. And if anyone's interested, there's lots more uh, in the book. But one example that I found really persuasive is this notion that if you bring people together across differences, say really big political differences. And you have them in a situation where they're equal status. And then you have them collaborate on a project where they have a shared goal and they're collaborating together. And this whole, and this, this situation is okayed by some authority or institution. In other words, they're not defying some kind of institution to do this, but it's actually accepted and encouraged. That collaboration, that that those meaningful relationships that are built out of collaboration toward a shared goal have been shown to decrease stereotyping. Mm-hmm. And so one example of this was um, a cricket league in India. So in India, there's a lot of caste-based bias. Mm-hmm. And what this particular research found was that If you put men, Indian men from different castes on the same cricket team, so you've got equal status, shared goal, collaboratively working together on the sports team. What they found was that at the end of, you know, dozens of games and at the end of this sort of league, all of the games that were played in this league, those men who were on teams with different caste Mm -hmm. uh, men were more likely to have friends of different castes, were more likely to nominate someone from a different caste for a, an award. They were they their stereotypes about caste started to 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 break away, to dissolve. Absolutely, yeah. And this is something we've seen in the military when the US Army was integrated at the end of World War II. We saw white officers totally change their attitudes toward black black uh, army uh, servicemen because they were working collaboratively mm-hmm. toward a shared goal. We see it in sports. We've seen it in policing. I mean, one of the really innovative approaches to rebuilding trust between police and community that I uncovered and that I write about a lot in the book was an approach developed by a civil rights lawyer named Connie Rice. And this gets back to something you and I were talking about, about um, trying to persuade people with a heavy hand. So what she found was that after she spent 15 years suing the LAPD for discrimination, nothing was really changing. She was winning lawsuits, but nothing was changing in the organization. So she decided to go inside and work with the police to Mm -hmm. see if she could help change Minds and hearts from the inside. Change the culture from within. You Exactly. Exactly. And so one of the things she did was she devised this program that brought officers and community members together to work toward shared goals, equal status, and develop meaningful relationships. And this completely changed things. The, it increased trust. It actually decreased arrests and decreased crime. Mm-hmm. And so that is one one big takeaway, I think, for audience members is, it, you know, if you're looking to build bridges, find a way to collaborate on a shared goal with mm-hmm. someone who's from a totally different background. 
Oh yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I think that it's incredibly important, and, and one of the one of the best examples that I can think of this that was summed up beautifully in a movie would be "Remember the Titans," right? <laughs> you know, you, you talked about the the example of the Indian Indian cricket team. Well, I mean, I mean, the the movie "Remember the Titans" with uh, Denzel Washington and and uh, is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I don't think any human being can watch that movie and not just get goosebumps. And it, it's an awesome thing. You know, and, and then again, I, I go back to, you know, my conversation with my friend Daryl Davis and the things that he's been able to do. Oh, completely. At, you know, the things that he's been able to do in in in, in really infiltrating, you know, white supremacist groups and 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 changing the the minds, hearts, and souls of, of different uh different individuals and getting them out of the clan and getting them out of the neo-Nazis. And, and I've obviously, I've talked to the, some of the people that he's helped, you know, former head of the Nazi party, Jeff Scoop on, on the podcast. And the, the common thing that comes away from those conversations, Jessica, is if you treat them like a monster, you will never change their mind. Mm-hmm. You know, hate what they're doing, hate what they're saying, hate what they're living but if you want to change what they're doing, you have to get in there and and really uh, collaborate. So um, completely, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this and and hearing you talk. It's reminding me of something that Connie Rice said to me, which was, Jessica, I realized you can't persuade people you hate. You cannot persuade people you hate. No, no, no. It it, it if you. <laughs> Yeah, if you start that relationship, well, just look at the just look at the political landscape that we live in nowadays, Jessica. Mm-hmm, look mm-hmm. at how toxic things have become. Yeah, it's horrible. Six, eight, ten, twelve years, whatever the case may be, the more toxic it becomes, the less that gets done. And who suffers? The American people every single time. You know. Yes. It's 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 awful. Yes, it's and awful. I was actually and, and just now talk- you have neighbors not talking to neighbors you have family members that won't talk to family members all because some blowhard politician in washington gets up to a podium and and says these people want to run your grandma off a cliff or this person is going to you know bankrupt your family and 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 ruin everything that you've worked for your whole life that stuff is what stands in between civility yes and just outright hatred for for your for a fellow man. And I think this is something Monica and I just talked about recently as well. Our, our mutual friend Monica Guzman, she she was pointing out that it's there's almost it's almost become legitimized to dehumanize people on the basis of politics. Like it's not okay to dehumanize people on the basis of a lot of other things, but when it comes to politics, there's like this righteous dehumanization that that group is less than human, and oh, yeah. it's. Yeah, I mean it's it's going to be the end of us I think if we don't figure oh, out what to do. And that's why I love the work that I do with Braver Angels and my friends Monica Guzman and and all the all the folks over at Braver Angels. I mean the work that that they do to try and bridge that political divide has been incredible. I mean it it's been one of the you know the one of the honors of my life to to get to be part of that with them and and quite honestly, I, I think I'm actually going to be doing more with them a, a, as we go forward. But that's that's the kind of work that needs to be done. And that's why I do the D-Rate the Hate podcast, Jessica. You and I probably have more politically that we would disagree on than ever agree on. And I think that is totally all right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I think I think we couldn't be incredible friends and, and have decent conversations like this. Because if more people had conversations like this, knowing we have a huge political divide. Right. If more people had that again in this country, can you imagine how different this world would be or how or how, how different our country would be? And, and yes. as as the U.S. goes, the rest of the world goes. And and right now, the rest of the world is looking at, at the United States and saying, if they fall, the whole rock is done. Mm-hmm. We're all we're all done because there's no place left to go. You know, mm-hmm. we're, the, we're the greatest country on the planet. And if we continue the, the infighting and the bickering and everything else that we have now, 
all the evil forces around the world is going to pick us apart and and leave nothing left. But uh, I don't even know. I don't even want to think about it. Right? <laughs> it's 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 incredibly ugly. So yeah, no, that was just one example and a and a fantastic example, Jessica, of a solution for uh, getting beyond the bias. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah, it's it's important. I mean, obviously. I don't think anybody out there looks and, and can say we live in a world that or live in a country that's that's free of racism. We live in a country that's free uh, of bias. I mean, mm-hmm. you'd be silly to say such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, I, I don't believe that it's it's nearly as rampant, you know, as, as some people you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. Uh, do. And, and I, I think I think more often than not you know, certain opportunists try to take advantage of their ability to promote that as, you know, the the biggest issue we face as a country. But what I do uh, agree with you on is it can be better. It Mm -hmm. can get better. Mm -hmm. And I think we all need to do our part as individuals, as individuals on a daily basis to try and be better people. Yeah. And I mean, I think we all understand what it feels like to be, to have assumptions made about us. You know, you and I, I'm sure both have had experiences as Midwesterners with people making some kind of generalization about what people from the Midwest are like. Flyover country, right? We hear that. I lived, I lived, I lived in East- Orlando, Florida for 13 years. I was called a Yankee almost every day, which is fine. I mean, I don't care. It's funny. But, uh, or yeah, the, you know, Midwest, you know, redneck, you know, exactly. those kind of things. And I lived on the East Coast. I lived on the West Coast. I can't tell you the number of times someone made some disparaging remark, maybe not even knowing I was from the Midwest, about, you know, those those provincial, you know, uneducated people who cares about them. So right. we we all, you know, I think a lot of us have the, we've had the, the, probably everyone has had the experience of someone mistaking something about them, making an assumption stereotyping them, not getting something about them. So I think we can all relate to how frustrating it is to not be seen for the individual that we are. Absolutely. And and I think that's the biggest takeaway I, I want everybody to have from our conversation here today, Jessica. Obviously, you know, I, I want people to to check out your book. You know, I don't care if they're on the right. I don't care if they're on the left. I don't care if they're a man, woman, somewhere in between, if they think that too, whatever. I want people to check out your book because I, I think you do provide real solutions. And I, I think you provide a, a viewpoint that everybody needs to a, a, at least see. But I think the biggest thing that I want people to take away from this particular conversation, like so many of my conversations, is don't paint that picture of somebody in your mind before you have that conversation. Yes. You know? Look at everybody as a blank slate and build your perception of them as you get to know them yes. and work with them as the individual that they are and and not some preconceived notion of who they are based on what they look like, what they sound like, what the, you know, where they're from or or things like that. I, I think that's honestly, I mean that's that's one of my biggest goals in in, in everything that I do. Yes. Is uh we're all individuals. We can only fix ourselves as individuals, and we can only look at others as individuals. I was wondering, and feel free to say no or edit this out, (laughs) but I was wondering if I could read you a short section that kind of addresses this exact question. Absolutely. Okay. I've got, I've got, because this kind of, I have this short paragraph that just touches on a lot of what we've talked about, about individuals versus groups versus do, is it? Should we emphasize these identities? Should we ignore these identities? You know, these big questions we're struggling with as a country. Okay, here it goes. For much of this project, I struggled with what felt like a paradox. The fact that on one hand, emphasizing differences carries the risk of deepening essentialist stereotypes and increasing prejudice and discrimination. But on the other hand, downplaying these differences can generate feelings of invisibility and disrespect. In time, I came to see that the choice was false and impossible. We are all of these. We are similar, sharing the need for belonging, fresh air, vegetables, and human connection. 
We have differences born from our ancestries and bodies and contexts created by people long dead. And we are individuals, as particular as the markings of a human iris. Wrote Audre Lorde, we have no patterns for relating across our human differences as equals. The problem, it seems, is not in seeing these differences, but in the values and meanings we attach to them. And maybe if we can grapple with our biases enough to see one another in all these facets at the same time, perhaps we can begin to create the patterns that Lord imagined. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there. I think you're right. I think it is a false choice because you're right. You're always going to run the risk one way or another. Do, you know, we hear people talk about a colorblind society versus a colorless society and, and and things like that and and you're right do we do we shoot for that colorblind society but then ignore and, and run the risk of offending it, so i i don't think there is a perfect answer right i go back to what i say all the time and that's we as individuals need to work within ourselves to be the best human beings that we can be. Agreed. If I am doing my best to treat everybody, and I know I've, I've, I've been throwing out so many different names in this, in this particular conversation, because it takes takes me back to so many of these different people that I've talked to. But another friend of mine, Jennifer Furlong talks about platinum rule, right? Not the golden rule. Not don't treat people as you want to be treated. Treat people as they want to be treated. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it's the platinum rule, and and it's and it's beautiful because I may not want to be treated as your culture would have you hope that you are treated. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. so you know we talk about multiculturalism, and, and and you know one of the greatest things about the United States, in my opinion, and and the opinion of, of many in my you know in my experience throughout my life has been the united states is one of the most successful multiracial multicultural multiethnic places on the planet oh yes there are people that would have you believe differently but we are but if you focus nothing more than on multiculturalism and multiethnic and multi blah 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 if you focus on those things we lose our uh, our identity as a nation, right? We, because you can't, that can't be the identity. There has to be a common bond. There has be, to be a, mm-hmm. it can be part of it. And it's important. It really is important. And that's why up to this point, we have been the most successful is because we have been multi ethnic, multi racial, multi, multicultural. But when you start to focus on that and only that, and try to keep people in their perspective boxes because of it, things start to fall apart. It only lasts for so long. You have to have that common bond. So yes, I I think I, I don't think you can have a truly colorblind society without running the risk of breaking down other parts of our common humanity. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. I'm just thinking through this as I'm talking, obviously. <laughs> but I, does that make sense? I mean, Absolutely. I mean, it's really something that I continue to struggle with. You know, uh, it's a real un, unsolved <laughs> unsolved problem of our country. You know, like, sure. how do we deal with differences? And I, I totally understand the desire from some to say, let's just ignore the differences, move on, let's move on, let's move past them to our common humanity, our common shared goals as a country, as a nation, as a society. And I think we can't ignore those differences, not only because it it feels disrespectful to so many to, to say, I don't see your identity, I don't see your ethnicity or race, but also I think we actually miss something really important about people's experience if we if we pretend that they're group identity has has no relevance because it does it does Mm -hmm. you know like whether we whether we want it to or not i think you know the fact 
of my being a Midwesterner has shaped who I am. Being a woman has shaped who I, you know, has shaped all of these things. So I think it's just something we, there's constantly going to be interesting conversations like this, you know, about how to, how to deal with these how, realities. How to deal with it. You know, and, and the thing is, is we are on this planet, Jessica, for such a minute amount of time. Each of yes. us, right? Yeah. I, I mean, when you think about it, at best, you and I will live to maybe 100, 105. God willing, 105. Right? I'm going for it. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, so the, but the reality and, and the reason I use the largest number on the spectrum of human life that uh, really is because even at that, even at that large number, it is a mere speck when it comes to the, the grand scheme of the amount of time that this planet has been here and it's going to be here. Yes. You know, this problem has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? I mean, I know we talked briefly about Ibram X. Kennedy thinking he that thinking he discovered where racism started or whatever, which it was happening biblically long before that ever happened. So whatever. But but I say that to say this. This problem has been around for thousands of years. It's not going to get solved before you and I punch our final ticket, right? Mm -hmm. But if we each as individuals every day do our best mm -hmm. to be the best human being we can and treat everybody with human dignity, like I said, to me, I, I don't care what, what, what color or perceived racism. I mean, I love the idea of theory of racelessness. Being black and or, or and white or or whatever, ethnicity and things like that. Yeah, those things make us different. Culturalism makes us different. Race doesn't really make us different, in my opinion, and and I don't think it should. I, I like I like I'll go with the theory of racelessness. But but as it was pointed out to me, that's not colorblind. That's not a colorblind society. That's a raceless society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that that was probably a tangent that I made. I'm, no problem. <laughs> but, but the reality is, is this. We as individuals, if we if we treat everybody with dignity, if we work hard, find ways to build that common ground, that common bond, that common goal, instead of looking at what separates us, mm -hmm. what makes us different. We are going to go so much further in this short amount of time that we have on this planet than we ever will. By trying to convince everybody that there's a racist under every bed or a Nazi hiding in every closet, mm -hmm. or this person hates you because of this, or that person wants to keep you down because of that. Mm -hmm. Finding those common goals, finding solutions with like you've done with your book, Jessica, is the right way to go about this. Because then it does not matter what we don't agree on. If we're looking right. for solutions, we we're going probably... in this. Yeah, we're then we're all trying to go in the right direction. The right direction. Yeah. 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 No, I, and and that's the thing is, we might not agree on what every single problem is. That's fine. Let's find yeah. them. Let's let's find one. Right. Let's we'll probably with... probably agree on a couple. Right. <laughs> right. Let's, let's start. The, let's start with the ones that we do agree that are, are real problems. Right. And work on those and find solutions. And then see what happens. Mm -hmm. Chances are, if we find one and find a solution, just the nature of things, once we've come to that, we're probably going to find more, right? Exactly. And then we also benefit from the whole meaningful relationships, decreasing stereotypes. So then if we've worked together toward a solution, we've also decreased the stereotypes we have about each other in the process. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think it's been an incredible conversation, Jessica. Jessica Nordell, thank you so much. People need to check it out, the book, and they can obviously find out more about Jessica and all the way to, to find her in the in the show notes. But Jessica Nordell, The End of Bias is the book. The End of Bias, a beginning. I'm looking at this as a, as a, as a beginning of a great friendship between you and I. Thank you so much, Jessica. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been great. Friends, if there's anything in this episode that provided exceptional value to you, please make sure to hit that share button. Share it with your friends, share it far and wide. And of course, if you haven't done so already, 
be sure to subscribe right from our website so you can get the Derate the Hate podcast sent to your email inbox every week. So this is Wilk wrapping up for the week saying get out there. Be kind to one another. Be grateful for everything that you've got. And remember, it's up to you to make each and every day the day that you want it to be. If there is something that you would like to share with me, you can catch me on most social media platforms or you can email me directly, wilk at wilksworld.com. With that, my friends, I am going to back on out of here and we will catch you next week. Take care.